please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans. On Wednesday nights, we are going through uh, the book of Romans, going through the Bible. And so we are in chapter 2, verse 1. Romans 2, verse 1. We're going to study the first 16 verses. Let's read those together and then let's pray. So this is Romans 2, verse 1. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourselves. For you who judge practice the same thing. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do not think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things are, and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impotent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath, of revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Verse 7. Eternal life to those who by patient continuing in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of the man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For as many have, have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Verse 15 who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness between themselves, their thoughts, accusing or else excusing themselves. And the day when God will judge the secret of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Let's pray together. Father, as we look at this section of scripture, may we be reminded of your grace. May we be brought to the foot of the cross. May we understand your righteousness and your judgment. May there not be any confusion. In the midst of a busy week and a busy day, would you just give us the the freshness of heart and attitude and mind to hear your word. Lord, we just pray where there's refreshment needed that you would provide it, where there's conviction that's needed that you would provide it. In Jesus' name, amen. The theme of the book of Romans is the righteousness of God revealed or righteousness from heaven. And if you'll look back with me into chapter one, we see this in verses 17, or verse 17. Chapter 1, verse 17, for in it the righteousness of of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So Paul will spend the next two chapters, from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to the end of chapter 3, explaining why we need the righteousness of God by faith, why we can't earn it, by works, by there's nothing inside of us that deserves it, where it's a true gift of grace that God extends to us. So last week, at the end of chapter one, we saw God's judgment upon the person that doesn't know the word of God, someone that grows up in an unbelieving home, 
And how are they judged by God? How is someone who never had access to the word of God, how are they held accountable? And God told us that by creation, there's the revelation of God. So if you don't acknowledge the creator and acknowledge God through his design, then we're held accountable. Do you guys remember last week at the end of the study, we had this long laundry list. Do you guys remember that? It described all of this sin and this unrighteousness that I think inevitably we found ourselves in that list where we go, man, disobedient to parents, whisperers, and the list just went on and on. Then it ended by saying, also those who approve of these things are guilty as well before God. So it was that person that is unbelieving, that person that's just totally rejected Christ, and we find ourselves in that list of unrighteousness. But now in chapter two, it addresses a different person. It's the moralist. It's the self-righteous religious person who would say, I don't need the grace of God because I don't see myself in that list. I've not done this. I've not done that. And in fact, these are all the things that I have done. And they're trusting in their religion instead of trusting in the grace of God for salvation. I don't know which is harder to reach. The person who's an atheist that's rejected God, that's living a completely hedonistic life, which means they're just going for pleasure, and they're very open and honest about that, and they acknowledge that they're a sinner. It seems like that person's a little closer to the grace of God than someone who's very moral, who's very religious, that doesn't want to be honest with the darkness of their own hearts, and they say, I'm good, I'm fine. I'm willing to roll the dice on approaching God with, with my works. And a lot of times, religion, and what I mean by religion is going to church, reading your Bible, living a moral life, but it's apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. I hope you know there's a big difference between religion and relationship. We're here tonight because we're seeking a relationship with Jesus Christ, not because it's our obligation. I grew up in the church. I grew up in a religious setting. I was born on a Sunday, and the next Sunday I was in church. When the doors of the church were open, we were there. Wednesday night, we were there. Sunday night service, we were there. We were there for the Sunday school hour, and then stayed for the the next hour, and all these types of things. And I know by personal experience what it's like to be completely lost inside of the pews of a church inside of the chairs of a church. I could tell you the Bible stories. I could tell you don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. (laughs) By the way, that's not the 11th commandment in the Bible. But I had all these boxes down, but I wasn't aware of my own sinfulness and need for God's grace until I got into high school. And so that's what this section of scripture is dealing with. We've titled this section of scripture, God's judgment, and we'll be looking at three points of God's judgment. And Jesus illustrated these two individuals, one that is realizing he needs God's grace and one who's trusting in himself. And I'd encourage you to just listen as I read the words of Christ from Luke 18. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus within himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even 
as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So let's look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For whenever you judge another, you condemn yourselves. For you who judge practice the same thing. Therefore, if you've studied with us for any period of time, when we see the word therefore, we've got to find out why it's therefore. What, why is it there? Because it's a connecting word that brings us back to the previous paragraph. So in light of God's righteousness that we read in chapter 1, you're inexcusable. You're unescapable from, from God's judgment. You have no excuse before a holy God. Now he's dealing with this self-righteous person. It says, you who judge, and whenever you judge another, you condemn yourself because you practice the same thing. This is speaking of bringing condemnation into someone's life. We look down on someone, we think we're better than them, and we pronounce God's judgment upon them. And scripture says, here you are, you're judging someone, but you're practicing the same thing. Jesus told us to be careful that we don't have a log in our eye in dealing with the speck in someone else's eye. We covered that a bit on Sunday. David made this mistake, if you remember his story. Here comes Nathan the prophet and says, we've got a little problem here. We have a man in the kingdom who's poor, and his family have this lamb that's so dear to them. It's a young lamb, and they treat it like a pet. It sleeps in the home. And this rich man had a guest come to his house, and he had a multitude of cattle, a multitude of, of young lambs. But out of greed, he went and he stole this man's young lamb. He insisted on it. He said, I'm going to take it. I'm more powerful. I'm the rich man. You can't stop me. So he took, took the lamb. David hears these words, and Scripture tells us that he was enraged, and he was angry at this man, that he would do this to this family and take this, this family pet. And then there are these words from Nathan the prophet. He looks at David, and he says, David, you are that man. David pronounced judgment and said that this man should be killed for what he had done. But the law says if you stole someone's animal, you were to repay five times. So he would to be to repay five lambs, but it was not to have his life lost. And David executed a judgment that was above God's judgment because he himself was guilty. He had taken Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. He was the king. He was rich. In fact, he even had multiple wives, which we've covered is not a good idea. But here he is. He's pronouncing judgment. He's so angry. How could this guy do this? And then the Holy Spirit convicting him in that moment. David, that, that's you. So in our religion, and as being committed to, to morals... When we start to read the first half of Romans chapter 1 and put ourselves above it and start to judge others, 
it's probably because we're practicing some form of that sin in our own lives. And the judgment that we're measuring out to someone else will eventually be the judgment that will be used on ourselves. And so we need to be careful of this and careful that we don't operate in this way. The difference between identification and condemnation. In the scriptures, it says you will know them by their fruits. You've got to identify if there's fruit in in their lives. Also talks about false teachers and that a false teacher is a wolf in sheep's clothing. You've got to identify a false teacher. But there's a difference between identification and condemnation, right? It's very easy to slip over the line where you're starting to identify fruit and identify a false teacher to then move to pronouncing God's judgment upon them. As you know, I have three daughters. And as they get older, and if there's a a young man that comes over with his truck and he's got beer cans in the back, and he comes up to the front door and he's got a Playboy magazine in his back pocket, I can do some quick identification, can't I? And say, you know what? My daughter is not going out with you on your life. You can pack sand, bite the wall, it's time for you to leave. There's some appropriate identification that can take place. But is it my job to condemn him to hell? No. I, I, I don't need to pr- pronounce God's judgment to, uh, upon him, but I can identify. Do you see the difference? And so there's many situations in life where we need to use good godly discernment and identification, but not go into this place of, of condemnation. And this moralist that's trusting in himself has gotten to this place of condemning others, placing God's judgment on others, but he's practicing the same things. In verse 2, it says, But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. So when God does bring his judgment, and remember, this section of Scripture is for the purpose of bringing us to the grace of God, showing us our need for salvation through the cross of Jesus Christ. So this is apart from the cross. This is apart from believing in Christ's atoning work, God's judgments according to truth. He looks at the things we do. He looks at the things that we practice, and he brings his judgment in accordance with those things. In verse 3, And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same thing, that you will escape the judgment of God? So if you're taking notes, this is the first thing to consider with God's judgment tonight, is God's judgment is inescapable. Judgment is inescapable. And it says, if you're judging others and you practice these same things, do you think that you will escape the judgment of God? I think sometimes for us, if we're not careful, religion can be used to keep us from dealing with our real selves. And we go, well, I go to church. I, I tithe, I, I serve, I'm, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing that. And we all kind of come up with our own system that we fail to see our own lives. So if we're busy judging everybody else, then that becomes a smokescreen to not have to look at my own heart and in my own life. And someone could go through their whole entire existence being very religious, very religious. Oh, I'm good with God because of my religion. And they never see the dead bones inside of them. And then God says, the judgment is inescapable. And apart from what Jesus has done, whether someone's coming from a complete unbeliever background with no religion, 
or someone that's saturated in religion, unless they come to the cross to believe in what Christ has done for them, God's judgment is going to come. We deserve it. We've earned it. And I think that this section of scripture is really important because it affects our overall view of Christ, ourselves, and our lives. Because when we really understand that we do deserve the judgment of God, it causes every day to be that much better. Like if you've had a really bad day today, which I'm sure many of you have, and you know Christ is your savior, guess what? You're not going to hell. That's, the, that's good news. That's really good news. This is the worst it's ever going to get for you. So you can be encouraged. Hey, I'm not smoking in hell today. I'm not an agent of God's wrath. His judgment hasn't come upon me, and I deserve it. Do you know how much lighter that causes me to walk through, through life? But I've got to come to a place of realizing that in my own life. And Jesus put it this way on the Sermon of the Mount, getting us to see our own depravity. He says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. That was something that society accepted, and this is something you weren't supposed to do, And yet, he says, if you have had lust in your own heart, you're an adulterer. See, that's what the self-righteous religious man doesn't want to accept. Well, that's someone else, but that's not me because I'm a moralist. But yet, if we look at our own hearts, has there been a time, men and women, that you've lusted, you've longed for for someone, you've allowed your thoughts to to go too far, someone that's not your spouse, guess what? You're, You're an adulterer. The next one gets everybody under the sun. And that's murder. I'm not a murderer. Well, Jesus said, if you're angry in your heart and call somebody raka, which means fool, you're a murderer. You've committed murder in your heart. You have murder in your heart. Now, if we had a microphone of all of the things that we've said while we were driving, we would know that we're guilty before a holy God, right? What if Siri worked this way? What if Siri was secretly recording us while we were driving? You know, Siri is the smart, no smart part of the iPhones where you can say, Siri, please find the nearest Starbucks. Sorry, I do not compute right now, you know. But here's this Siri element on an iPhone. What if she was secretly recording you? Oh, I know. How many times have we called someone fool, thought that in our hearts, and God goes, you're a murderer. And all of a sudden, when God starts dealing with the intents of the heart, no matter how religious we are, we realize that we're sinners. Something that's so healthy and actually refreshing and encouraging is to see that it's equal footing at the cross, that we all equally need the grace of God, A murderer doesn't need the grace of God more than I do. We all need it. You know, we we, we look at our lives and we want to try to rate good and bad, and God begins to show us the wickedness inside of all of our own hearts. So God's judgment is inescapable. It will come if we don't come to the cross. In verse 4, important verse, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering? not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. So here is the self-righteous religious person, and God is being gracious to them. God is, let's look at this list. Riches of goodness, forbearance, long-suffering, and goodness. Once again, all of these things being poured out upon this individual 
but yet they never come to repentance. And God says that then they're despising the kindness of God. They're despising the goodness of God. Many times we confuse God's mercy with his approval. How does God win the hearts of sinners? He died for us while we were yet sinners. He pursues us with his grace and his kindness. But if we don't realize it, and we don't turn to him because of his grace and kindness, then we're despising it. It's like a balloon. You know, if you put a balloon and you want it to be a water balloon, and you put it in your kitchen sink, and you turn on the water slowly, but it consistently, and there's water flowing into that balloon, that balloon's going to expand and expand and expand, but eventually it's going to burst. And the kindness of God and the goodness of God is being extended and extended and extended, but will you respond to it? Maybe you haven't yet come to Christ, and for whatever reason, you're not quite ready. But think about God's kindness. Think about his patience. Think about his long-suffering. Think about what Christ has, has done upon the cross, and what are you waiting for? How much longer are you going to despise the goodness of God? Growing up in a Christian home, I, I thought this. I thought, you know, when I get older, like married and have kids and really old, I guess I'll give my life to Christ and settle down and surrender to him. But until then, I'm going to do whatever I want and have all the fun that I want. I didn't realize the great adventure was submitting to Christ. The great fun was in following Jesus Christ. What was they saying? I'm going to despise the kindness of God. I'm going to despise the, the goodness of God. I'm going to set aside this godly heritage that I've been given just to pursue my own selfishness. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. It seems to me that every morning when a man wakes up still impotent and finds himself out of hell, the sunlight seems to say, I will shine on thee yet another day, as that in this day you mayest repent. When your bed receives you at night, I think it seems to say, I will give you another night's rest that you may live to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Every mouthful of bread that comes to the table says, I have to support your body that still you may have space for repentance. Every time you open the Bible, the pages say, we speak with you that you may repent. Every time you hear a sermon, if it be such a sermon as God would have us preach, it pleads with you to turn unto the Lord and live. Every blessing from God screams out repentance to the unbeliever. Every time the sun shines upon someone's face that doesn't know Christ their Savior, it's God's kindness, it's his forbearance, it's his mercy that's saying, I've given you another day to repent. How important is repentance? Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. The disciples, when they were sent out, their first message was one of repentance. The early church's message was repentance. What does it mean? It's not a work that earns or de deserves salvation. It's a change of mind or a change of direction. It's a realization that I'm a sinner who's lost. I'm a mess, so I'm repenting of my sin. I'm turning away from my sin, turning to Jesus Christ. Christ, would you save me and be the Lord of my life? A neat testimony of God's forbearance, of his kindness, long-suffering, is with my great-grandmother. Her name is Naomi Watson, just a little fiery lady under five foot, 
I don't know how I came from her DNA, but I did. And Jesus, this little old lady, and a lot of times, you know, she said things that she shouldn't say, and was spirited, and a lot of fun too, and loving as well. But she just never saw her need for Christ. When you'd share with her about her being a sinner, and she needed to repent and put her faith in Jesus Christ, she just didn't get it. It was almost offensive to her. My parents shared with her to no avail, and just prayed for her and prayed for her. Phone rang. One day she calls. She's 99 years old. Her voice is shaking. She'd obviously been crying. She said, I received Christ today. I finally get it. I realize that I'm a sinner, and I need his grace and forgiveness. Her mind was, was very alert. She'd been watching some TV, some Christian TV, in her home with the assisted care that that she had, and she'd given her life to Jesus Christ. 99 years God waited for her to soften her heart and come to Christ, and she died at 101. That's when she passed away. That's God's forbearance. Don't wait till you're 99, okay? You might not make it. So verse 5, still dealing with this self-righteous man, but in accordance with your hardness and your impotent heart, you treasure up for yourselves the wrath of God in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So here's someone who's moral. Here's someone who's looking down on others for their lack of morals, but not seeing their own wicked heart. Religion didn't change the heart. Rules didn't change the heart. There was hardness of heart and an impotent heart. There was a heart that bore no fruit, that had no life. And because of this hard heart, then they're treasuring up for themselves the wrath of God. This is the way God's judgment works. And we see this in verse 5. It says the righteous judgment of God. So point number two about God's judgment is it's righteous. It's righteous judgment. Don't get this idea of God's judgment where God has a short fuse. And he's just had it. And so he finally pours out his judgment upon somebody. He's just had it with the world. So he, now he's going to pour out his, his final judgment. It's the heart of a father. The perfect father. The heavenly father who loves and cares. Doesn't want to pour out judgment. Wants to pour out grace. Who wants to bring consequences upon your kids? But someone rejects, their heart's hard, and they reject, and they reject, and unbelief, and lack of repentance. So they're treasuring up for themselves the judgment of God. The judgment of God is something that we bring upon ourselves. It seems at different points in history, in church history, different doctrines come under attack. And one of the doctrines that's under attack currently is the concept of God's judgment. And many people say things and wrestle with things, and I think they're honest questions. It was, how could a loving God send someone to hell? Maybe you've wrestled with that. Maybe you've had somebody ask you that question. And I would suggest to you, God doesn't send people to hell. People choose to go there. People get their own ticket. They make their own reservation. God wants to talk them out of it. That's the change of mind. That's the repentance. But they're set on it. That's why they have a hard heart. I want to go here. And ultimately, God then confirms their decision and sends them where they want to go. God is the one who ultimately puts that judgment upon them, but they chose it for themselves. And because they chose it for themselves, it is then righteous of God 
to bring that judgment upon them. But Jesus was that sacrifice that paid the price so that God could righteously pour out his judgment upon Jesus that we deserve, so that we could receive grace and we could receive forgiveness. How convinced are you that God's judgments are righteous? Because you're going to come up against it whether it's the questions of others or the wrestling in your own heart and mind. But we know this when we get to heaven, the chorus around the throne room of God says, righteous and true are your judgments. His judgments according to truth. His judgments according to righteousness. No one, the top intellects, the top lawyers of the day or even throughout history are gonna be able to come before God and say, God, it was unrighteous for you to send that person to hell. It's gonna be, Lord, it was the righteous judgment. God's judgment is righteous. In verse 6, who will render to each one according to his deeds. This is why it's righteous judgment. He's giving us what we deserve. There was a politician who was getting his picture taken by a photographer, and he cried out and said, you know, you're not doing my face justice. And the photographer said, well, with all due respect, sir, you should be crying out for mercy, not judgment. <laughs> and we lack to see our own face, if you would. We lack to see the own condition of our soul if we go, God, give me what I deserve. If you ever find yourself praying that to the Lord, stop. A much better prayer is, Lord, would you please give me what I don't deserve through the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Apart from Christ, God's gonna render us according to our works. The judgment's gonna be, you know, these were your deeds, these were your actions, these were the choices that you've made. You've rejected Christ and lived that decision out. In verse seven, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality. From verse seven to 11, Paul's contrasting those of faith and those of unbelief. And it, close reading of the book of Romans, we find very clearly that Paul's not teaching salvation by works. Verse 7 is not saying that you have eternal life by the good that you do, but if you just studied verse 7 outside of these three chapters, you may come out with that idea. That's why you can't just pick out a verse from the Bible, because as we'll get into chapter 3, you'll see very clearly where it says we're not justified by our works, but faith in Jesus Christ. So what's the point here? The point is that salvation comes through the gospel. However, the gospel will change our life and produce good works. We won't be perfect, but there will be transformation that takes place in and through our lives. It's not earning or deserving salvation, trying to get a paycheck from God, but it's evidence of salvation. It's like when a rock is thrown into a pond, it has impact, it has effect. And when Christ comes into our hearts through faith, there's impact, there's effect, there's a change that takes place in our lives. And verse seven describes that. And then verse eight is the contrast to it. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but they obey unrighteousness and indignation and wrath. So this is their mantra. This is what's ruling their lives as opposed to Christ. And something's gonna rule us. Something's gonna be in charge of us. Verse nine, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
So God doesn't have two different standards here to us. He says, on every soul who does evil, God's judgment is going to come. And this brings us to the cross. Have you ever done evil? Absolutely. Have you ever approved of evil? Absolutely. Have you ever had evil in your heart? Yes, every day. <laughs> and this brings us to the need for the blood of, of Jesus Christ, to the Jew and also to the Greek. Verse 10, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So again, we have the contrast of someone who has been touched and changed by the gospel. And verse 11 says, for there is no partiality with God. This is the third thing about God's judgment tonight, is God's judgment is impartial. God's judgment is impartial. God doesn't play favorites. In the historical context, this would be very difficult for the Jews, because the Jews are God's chosen people, and because of their heritage, they thought they were good with God. They thought they were approved with God. If you were talking with most Jews at the time, they would say, I don't believe that Jesus is God's son, that he's the Messiah, and why do I need him to be my savior? Because I'm already an Israelite, and I'm already in with God, so I wouldn't need Jesus Christ. And so Paul's statement here would resound, there's no partiality with God, whether you're Jew, which means you're from Israel, ethnically, or you're Gentile, which means you're non-Jewish. There is one door, there's one way, it's Jesus Christ. He is the only way to heaven. No one else comes to the Father except through him. So this touches a chord a little bit. There's some that would say, well, I've got a godly heritage. You know, my grandfather was a pastor, and, you know, we've been believers, and my, my parents are believers. Well, guess what? When you were born, you were not born a believer. You were born a sinner. And because your parents were believers, it didn't just pass down to you magically. Now, as parents, we would love our, if our kids just got it through osmosis. I, I bet my parents were longing for that day in my life where just be like, let's just take the Bible and do this over Eric's head and he'll just get it. It'll just happen by osmosis. No, it takes the heart of faith. You can't just trust in some heritage. Some people think they're Christians because they were born in America. No, you're not a Christian because you were, you were born in America. You're an American. And that means you're a sinner, just like everybody else, right? There's no partiality with God. God judges the same way. He's looking for those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you think that God has favorites or plays favoritism. He doesn't. You know, he's not more well-pleased with Billy Graham than he is with you. Or more well-pleased with, you know, Corey Tin Boom than with you. Why is he pleased with Corey Tin Boom? because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Why is he pleased with you? Because of the blood of Jesus Christ. He doesn't show partiality. He listens to the prayers, fill in your, your, your favorite mentor, your favorite Bible teacher, your favorite Christian author. Well, guess what? He listens to your prayers too. Why? Because the reason he listens to prayers is because of the blood of Jesus, not because of how many books you've wrote or how many you haven't written. Amen? There's no partiality with God. When it comes to giving God's judgment, he gives it out the same way. All right, you believe in Christ? 
Oh, you rejected Christ, you're trusting in yourself, you're trusting in your own works. This is a little bit convicting when we seek to apply it in our own lives, when we want to be more Christ-like, is we should be impartial. We shouldn't have favorites. We should treat people the same way and have the same standard that goes across the board. Verse 12, for as many as have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. What he's doing here in the next few verses is showing how he's going to judge someone who has the law, which would be the Jews, but also how he would judge someone who's a Gentile that didn't have the law, they didn't study the law. So in verse 12, it says, if you've sinned without the law, you're going to perish without the law. And if you've sinned in the law, you'll be judged by the law. You're judged by the knowledge you have. And verse 3, for not that the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So just hearing and studying the law isn't enough to be justified. And the word justified means declared righteous. It's those who do the law. If you're going to approach God based on works, based on the law, then you have to do it perfectly. And that's what drives us to the grace of God, where we can be declared righteous through faith, because nobody has fulfilled the law perfectly. Nobody has heard the law and done everything inside of it except Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of the law. See, God knew us. And if he didn't give us the law, we'd say, God, just tell me what to do. Give me some rules and I'll do it. And God goes, I know that's your tendency. So I did that. Read the first five books of the Old Testament. See how you do with these laws. And very quickly we realize, I need the grace of Jesus Christ. So someone who has the law is judged by the law if they did it and if they put it into practice. But how about the Gentile who didn't have the law? For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do things in the law, these, although not having the law, are law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience always bearing witness, and between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. They're held accountable to their conscience. Even though they haven't studied the Old Testament, they have their conscience, which is the law in their hearts, and if they violated that, then God's going to hold them accountable to that and say, you know, you knew in your conscience it was wrong to murder. You knew in your conscience it was wrong to lie. And this is interesting. Anthropology shows this, the studying of different societies. <clears throat> different societies still have a core value of morals even when they haven't had access to the word of God. Every society believes throughout history it's wrong to murder. There's never been a society as they've formed their system of rules that have said, you know, it's going to be right to murder. We're going to promote people who murder. We're going to give praise to those who murder. They've decided, no, that, that's not a good thing. All societies have agreed it's wrong to steal. What kind of society are you going to have if you condone stealing? And lift that up as a virtue. Where does that come from? This is an argument to the existence of God. Maybe you're wondering if God is true, if you believe that there is a God. We talked about design last week, proves that there's a designer, but so does conscience. Look around. People that don't know Christ as their Savior, they have a conscience. They have a moral compass. Where did that come from? Did they receive it themselves? 
God instilled that inside of him. So if they violate their conscience, then that's what God judges them by. They've excused their conscience, so their conscience then condemns them. Here's our last verse for tonight. It says, In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. The judgment of God is God dealing with the secrets of men. There's so many things that we keep hidden. So many things in our hearts that aren't exposed. But God sees and he knows. And that's what he's going to judge. All of a sudden, religion doesn't hold up. Religion doesn't hold up. Any church, anywhere, including ours, you put up the thoughts and the intents of the heart of any given day, and it would be a very empty sanctuary, wouldn't it? If we took all of our thoughts through today, we said, you know, we're just going to watch these thoughts up on the screens tonight, and then put the person's name under their thoughts. Uh, I gotta go, man. My kid's got a late soccer game. They started playing second grade soccer at eight o'clock at night. I gotta go, you know. My kid's getting an an award. I gotta gotta go. I got diarrhea. I gotta go. (laughs) Anything. I just gotta go. I gotta, uh, I literally gotta go. I gotta get out of here. We realize when it comes to the secrets of our hearts, we need something more than religion. We need a savior. I want to remind you once again where this all leads us to. So look with me in chapter 3 of Romans, verse 23, Romans 3.23. And when we get here in a few more weeks, I think we're going to have a far greater depth of understanding of these truths For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Two sons. One son just never could get his act together. You wouldn't call him moral. You wouldn't call him responsible. He was usually late for school. He tended to lie. He tended to be disrespectful. If you could count on one thing, you knew he was going to be selfish. He was self-seeking. The other brother, well, he got good grades. It was yes, ma'am, yes, sir. He exceeded in responsibility. He was squeaky clean. The one son, as soon as he got old enough, he demanded the money from dad. He demanded his inheritance. Why do I have to wait till I'm old? Why do I have to wait till you die? Just give it to me now. And the father said, okay. Probably in his wisdom, saw the give me in his son. Said, we need to deal with this as soon as possible. I'm going to give you your request. It's going to be the only way to deal with the selfishness. So he takes his inheritance. He goes. He parties like nobody's business. He's got friends. All these friends come because he's buying the drugs. He's buying the drinks. He's buying the good times. He could throw the parties, but eventually his money's gone. He spent it all up a lot sooner than he anticipated. There goes his friends. He's left with no one and nothing. Someone's hiring. It's the local pig farmer. He needs someone to feed his pigs. 
Side note to this story, if you've ever spent any time at a pig farm, it's not very pleasant. We had a relative in North Dakota who had a very large pig farm, and we went and visited it when I was in elementary school. I've been marred for life. <laughs> I mean, it was hundreds of pigs, and it was, it was disgusting. I'll leave it at that for you. But this was the guy's job. He took it. It's the only job he could find. And he's feeding the pigs, and he's feeding the pigs, and it's all he had to eat. In ancient culture, there was no organic pigs. There was, you give the slop to the pigs. You give what's rotting to the pigs. But he didn't have anything else. And he, he was looking at this pig food, desiring the pig food, and he was reminded, my servants have it better in my father's house than I do. I wonder if my father will take me back. I wonder if he'll be merciful. I wonder if he'll be gracious. So he goes back to the father's house. And the father's looking every day. He's waking up. Maybe my son will come back today. Maybe I could have a relationship with him again. Maybe he would see the goodness that he had in this home. And here's his son. And it took him a while to recognize his son because he was so beat up. His clothes were so dirty. He didn't have any shoes. His hair was ragged. And no, I, know, I, I recognize that walk. That's my boy. That's my son. And the father runs, throws a big party. He gets out these new expensive clothes and puts them upon his son. Everybody, my son has come home. My son has come home. But he's not the only son who needs to be reached because you still have the responsible, moral, older brother. And he's out in the field and he gets news of it and he starts to kick the dirt in judgment and anger of his brother and his dad. How could dad do this? How could he honor my brother who was so irresponsible, who threw it in the, the father's face? I'm the one who deserves a party. Why doesn't anybody ever notice my church attendance? Why doesn't anybody notice how I serve? Why doesn't anybody notice how I don't do any of all of these things? Who needed to be reached more in that story? Probably the older brother. And hopefully... He came to a place of brokenness and seeing his own need without having to have the outward rebellion and came back to the Father in his own much-needed way. Where do you fit in that story tonight? Are you the one who's ran away, the one who's made all of those sinful choices? Or are you the one who, on the outside, you've been moral? On the outside, you've been responsible but you know your heart. You know inside of your heart that there's a wickedness that you can't solve. There's a sin that you can't fix. And the good news is Jesus died for all of us. And the older brother and the younger brother equally needed the grace of God. Well, let's pray together. God, very simply but profoundly tonight, we just pray that you would show us our need for grace, our need for you to pay the price for our sins. Would you cause that to hit us in a profound and deep way as we take communion tonight? May we truly celebrate the fact that you don't treat us according to our sins. Would you take us in deeper relationship with you? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's